Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you who listen for the very first time, my name is Julian Carl and I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Synergen Group. I'm passionate about all things leadership and management, so passionate in fact that I decided to start a podcast about it. And here we are closing in on the end of season two and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Nigel Adams, who is the author of Match Fit for Transformation, Realising the Potential of Everyday Heroes. Nigel is the co-founder and director of Hetton Advisory, a boutique advisory firm specialising in building operational excellence, capability and the governance to support it. With significant experience as a passionate and innovative chief operating officer, Nigel specialises in service operations management. He is known for driving performance and transformational change at pace while leading large, multi-award winning teams in complex delivery networks. After 15 years in consulting, Nigel has spent the last 14 years focused on financial services operations. This has provided him with the depth and breadth of experience gained from working across a wide range of industries, challenging received wisdom and understanding industry-leading operational thinking characteristics. Nigel considers himself to be collaborative, pragmatic, resilient, adaptive and commercial and he is confident working in complex, highly ambiguous, influence-orientated environments. Now, During the course of the conversation, we explore his book in great detail. As always, I start off by asking Nigel why did he decide to write the book. We speak about what transformation actually is and why it's important to be match fit. We discuss individual performance metrics and understanding customer quality. And I finish the interview by asking Nigel about what operational excellence is and how do we start the journey. So keep listening. As always, we'd really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Nigel Adams, who is the author of Match Fit for Transformation, Realising the Potential of Everyday Heroes. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Well, welcome, Nigel, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to actually come out to HQ and (laughs) hang out with me for for a little while. Uh, So the listeners have a bit of an idea of who you are. Who is Nigel Adams? So, um, as you'll probably tell from my dulcet tones, originally from the People's Republic of Yorkshire in the UK, uh, but I've been out here for 25 years and still haven't lost my accent. Um, very sort of uh, sort of strange sort of career path. I've done everything from running pubs to running cosmetic surgery centres. Spent a lot of time in uh, consulting in different industries, from heavy manufacturing right through to sort of uh, government. And then just in the last fifteen years, spent a lot of time working with the banks and predominantly two streams: one in payments and working capital services, trade, all the sort of transaction. Uh, processing operations of banks, but at the same time, I've been there to help develop their operational capability as well. So banking's an interesting uh, place to uh, not be working in at the moment? Very much so, yep. So I, I left there um, just about sort of December last year, and obviously um, there's there's lots going on and some really challenging times for the banks at the moment. Mm. So we're here to talk about your book, uh, Match Fit for Transformation, Realising the Potential of Everyday Heroes. Yep. Uh, why did you decide to write this? 
there are a couple of things. One was sort of uh, very personal that um, both parents back in the UK in nursing homes, uh, one mum had dementia for a very long time. And we always thought that as soon as she went into a nursing home, dad would um, go off and do his bucket list. And then within a year of her going into a nursing home, dad was in the same place and had gone down just as, as quickly and I saw him one day, he'd no idea who I was, and I'd realised that he's not going to tick off the things in his bucket list, and so I wrote mine the following night, and one of the items on there was to write a book. Um, always loved books, always been surrounded by books, and it was a question of how do I get to write something which I can feel confident about writing, and um, so I thought, well, I'll pick something relatively close to sort of home in terms of the type of work I do, and um, at that time, I've been going through a particular experience with the organization I was working with, which was ANZ at the time. And that really just prompted me to pull this book together about the, I guess, the journey I went through over about a five to six year period when I was sort of working at ANZ. Okay. Well, I'd like to uh, start off with a bit of a excerpt if I can. It's from uh, chapter one. If you work in an organization, there's a very good chance you are being transformed as we speak. Somewhere between 80 and 90% of organisations currently have a transformation agenda. For some, this is exciting. It provides an opportunity for growth, both personal and organisational. For others, it's just the latest fad. Keeps the transformation team busy and will go away with the next round of executive change. But it fills many people with trepidation. Organisations have been transforming for years, but the scale, breadth, pace and intensity of organisational transformation, particularly digital transformation, has given a rise to a whole new level. Whatever your perspective, the transformation in your organisation will have an impact on your working life. This really resonated with me because uh, even just uh, I was doing some work earlier this week and they were launching on a full-scale transformation. So what what's what's what is all this stuff about transformation? So um, I think it, every organisation and, and every entity needs to evolve. And if you don't evolve, what's happening is your customers are moving forward and your competitors are moving forward. So your performance doesn't stay flat; it actually goes backwards. So you do need to change, and we see that in in every aspect of our life. And organisations, it goes from very small change up to very very large change. And one thing that's happened clearly in the last sort of 10 to 20 years is the rate of technology innovation has allowed organizations like these sort of um, Facebooks and Googles and the digital natives to sort of really steal a march in other areas and other industries which have almost been decimated by them. And transformation just seems to have taken on a whole new life. It's now become an existential threat for organizations. And as I say, it's not just we just need to change, we need to put a new platform and we need to enter a new market. It's we've got to change the very fabric of what we do and how we create value because we can't keep up that's creating this sense of threat for an organization. For people in the business, though, it's it's hard to recognize. Some, I say some love the idea of the change. Some love the sort of pace and the things that they're having to adapt. Others are feeling really, really nervous and they're feeling very, very self-conscious about the risk to them, they've got mortgages, they've got families to look after, and this threat of will I have a job in two to three years' time is it touches everybody and in, in many different ways. Hmm. I was talking to someone uh, earlier this week and they made a really interesting observation about the way people respond to change and transformation. And the, 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 their observation was that people are far more ready to do it in their personal lives yep. than they are in their professional lives. Because they were talking about you know, mobile phones, everyone's using Facebook, yep. LinkedIn, whatever on their personal life, but then professional, they don't want to touch it. 
So have you come across that? I think it, 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 one of the big things for me about transformation, about how to help sort of teams through it, is you've got to understand how to connect a change that's sort of been probably initiated at the very top of the house in the organization, and how does that become relevant for the individual? Now, within any team, you'll have the people that have been there a long time who are looking, actually quite looking forward to redundancy because they can get that payout, they can get the check, they can do the big round trip around Australia. And then there's others who are at a, a more personal part of their career where they need the money. You know, they've just committed to a new house. They've just committed to a new mortgage. They've got kids paying school fees or going off on doing sports training. So it's about how do you work with each individual to understand what their personal objectives are and how they can get the most out of this. And, you know, one of my, so the organizations I talk a lot about is about Toyota. And when they closed down their plant in um, Altona, the effort that the organization went into to help each individual in that plant that was going to be impacted by the change work through and how they could sort of move to the next phase of their careers and their lives was, uh, was very impressive. So you talk about this idea of being match fit. Yep. Why, what is match fit? So um, I guess the, the sport that I've spent most of my time sort of uh, both playing and watching was rugby. And um, we always use, as, as most sporting teams do, is before the season starts, you go off on a pre-season training camp. You know, you try and get off a little bit of the, uh, the excess flab that you may have accumulated over the close season. You start to bond together. You may have a new coach. You've got sort of new players coming in. And you build that rapport. And you start just working on the basics. You're working on your, your just basic skills, basic rapport, basic levels of fitness, just to get ready to play. And um, then throughout the season, you keep you sort of you, you advance that and you sort of try and refine things. The analogy for me was drawn from two areas. One that um, I have a particular passion for the All Blacks, even though I'm a I'm English and b my, uh, I'm now a, an Australian citizen. I've been for a long time, but their approach to leadership is absolutely outstanding. Notwithstanding they've just lost the, the World Cup, um, but. When you think about how you tackle something like a transformation, it's about the preparation you need to do. And this book is very much around, it's not about the transformation team. It's about the 90% of the people in the organization who can actually help the transformation succeed by getting the basics right, by really sort of working together, collaborating far more effectively, and essentially laying the railroad tracks for the big steam train to come along and take us to that digital station. And so the, that's where the theme comes from. It's about passion for sport, what sports people go through to get really fit, and then applying it into a work context. Okay. So you talk about this idea of setting the context. Yeah. So is that really about the explaining the why and what we're doing and yeah. before we actually launch the transformation? Yep. So there's been, you know, obviously huge amounts of research in terms of if you want to get discretionary effort out of people – they need to have a reason why they're coming to work. It's not just for a paycheck. Yes, clearly the paycheck's important and the camaraderie with your team. But if you really want the people to go above and beyond, they need to be able to connect to the purpose of the organization. They need to be able to see how their job fits into the overall objectives of the organization. And the, the best example is the sort of the... Um, the NASA one and the janitor who was asked, you know, so what's your what's your role here? But, you know, um, by Kennedy, and he said, my job is to put a man on the moon, because that was the mission of NASA. And even though he was the janitor, he'd connected personally to that mission. 
And so many organizations are realizing that now with digital, you really do need to make sure it doesn't matter what your role is, whether you're the receptionist, whether you're the most junior person in the organization, you have to find a reason to buy into the overall mission. And that's through translation. Mm. Do you think a lot of leaders realize the importance of that? Um, no, I don't. And for what, you know, some of the coaching I've just been doing over the last couple of weeks, I go through a simple checklist with them and there's nothing on the checklist which they don't know about. This is, you know, it's not rocket science in many ways. But in the sort of the cut and thrust of the day, team, day-to-day teams are just so overwhelmed with stuff, the obvious things just team, seem to get left behind. And, you know, you come in to work with all good intentions, you've got 10 items on your to-do list and it's five, six o'clock at night and you've only got one of them done. So... But I don't think people realize just how critical it is that people really need to know why they're doing what they're doing. It doesn't, and it doesn't always make sense. It doesn't always connect. I'm always fascinated with all things strategy. Yep. So many different versions of it, so many different thoughts yep. on it. I love it. Uh, you talk about this idea of um, strategy on a page. Yep. Uh, I wouldn't mind exploring that a little bit because uh, I'd like to hear your views on it. Um, so I think one of the real challenges for especially a large sort of a large mature organization, there are so many different facets to it. And clearly communication is always seen as a, as a critical capability. And if you want to try and bring people on the journey, you're not going to you know, be able to encourage 10, 20, 30,000 people to read a 400 page paper on the strategy. It needs to be simple. And you know, if you can't communicate it in threes or something as, as along those lines, um, you've got very little chance of it succeeding. So the art of a strategy on a page for me is how you can set something which covers the breadth of the organization and the breadth of its objectives in a relatively simplistic way. But it doesn't matter how good you are, when you get down to a specific individual in a specific team, the leader has got to be able to point to a sentence, a picture, a diagram, an icon on that particular strategy on a page and saying, that's what we're responsible for. The way your job helps us achieve this strategy is highlighted in this box and to do that translation. So the, you know, the, in, in simplistic terms, that idea of strategy is um, yeah, the Alice in Wonderland quote. If you, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any sort of road will get you there. But saying, where are we going? Where are we starting from? And how are we going to get there? And just to make that as simple as possible and how to translate that into what I do on a day-to-day basis, how will that help? Uh, help us achieve the organization's objectives. And that, for me, is the beauty of a strategy on a page. So it's the, it's the document plus the translation from the leader to their, of, of how that particular document helps their people. Mm. I think that translation points. That's is, critical. Yeah. Because it's the, it's the language. So if you've got a team in, um, like I've had teams in uh, Bangalore, I've had teams in Chengdu, I've had teams in Manila, We've got the same strategy, but culturally how they receive information, how they interact with information, you have to put it into their words and their language in a way that sort of it connects and has meaning and resonance to them as opposed to, you know, what the CEO is trying to achieve is, you know, can be very big sort of strategic pictures, you know, want to simplify our business. Well, if you want to simplify your business, what does that mean for the guy that comes in and starts to do data entry today? Mm. How does how does that connect? And that's the that's the job of the leader, and that is a very difficult job in many ways that often goes overlooked. Mm, absolutely. In chapter three, you talk about the idea of selecting a squad. Yep. 
the the the, the people basics in you. You're right. There's a vast difference between a champion team and a team of champions. Yep. So talk to me about how we how we select the squad. Um. So it's I'm a big believer in teams, and if you've if you've ever been fortunate enough to work in a, a high performing team, it just feels different. The energy, the passion, the emotion, the connectedness. It's just an, it's an extraordinary feeling, and I've been fortunate to work in a couple of teams, but for relatively short periods of time. And um, for me. Being able to pick the team, if you if you become a leader and you move into and you acquire a new team, you can't just start from scratch. And it's very rare that sort of um, people are appointed into roles where they can start from scratch and pick exactly what they want. You have to work with people, and that's what makes leadership so fascinating: is that everybody is different. And the some of the two, the two most revered leaders I've worked with have been able to tap into the strengths of every individual. I've never hired someone where they tick every single box on the job description but I've never hired anyone that hasn't come to the job and brought something to it that I wasn't expecting that was a real benefit so the trick is how do you get the people to work together and the first thing is you, you you've got to get those the basics the hygiene stuff out of the way if you've got two people doing the same job and you give them different job titles it'll just eat away at them. If two people are doing basically the same job but they've got different um, remuneration conditions, it will eat away at them. All that stuff, you can't have people coming into work just with that ball in their stomach thinking, this is just not right, it's just not fair. So you have to deal with the basic stuff. Once you've got that, it's about you know right people, right roles, and get people to play to their strengths. You know, don't focus on the weaknesses. You know, No one ever told Kathy Freeman to go and practice a long jump. Mm. Focus on the strengths and look at the breadth of skills, capabilities, and competence you need across your team and make sure you're covering all the bases and then how to bring the team together. That for me is it. And, and as the leader, I would all, I see myself as just a resource in the team. I bring certain capabilities, but I've also got many, many weaknesses, many gaps. I need other people in my team to be able to complement that. And then the last part is to build a foundation of trust. One of the great sayings um, I heard from a a leader many years ago was, trust arrives on a tortoise but can leave on a hare. And you will achieve, it doesn't matter how good your strategy is, it doesn't matter how ambitious your goals are, how many resources you have, if you do not have a foundation of trust with your team, you're going nowhere. Mm. So true, couldn't agree more. On page 43, you give a people basics checklist and it talks about things such as health and safety, job titles, reporting lines, remuneration, targets, all those types of things. Do you you deliberately try to provide information to people in the forms of checklists and frameworks because you find that they then find it easy to implement? Yep. Um, So, you know, there's, uh, there's a, a book by um, Atul Gwanda, I think his, his name is, on the Checklist Manifesto. And it talks about, you know, one of the, the the technique that has materially impacted the safety performance in both airlines and hospitals is a simple checklist. And it's such a simple tool. But we're so busy at work. We've got so much stuff on 
How do I know what I need to focus on, what my priorities are? I, don't, I haven't got time to wade through pages and pages of the internet, the corporate internet, or to go and look at many different books. Many of the advisors you see, they have the domain specific. So they'll come in and they'll talk about their lean, they'll talk about metrics, they'll talk about people leadership. But I just want a simple checklist. Just tell me what I need to do. And this, this idea of the, the people basics one is, so none of the things on there will be new to a leader. Hmm. However, as teams evolve over time, as they go through restructures, changes, new sort of businesses come in, bits just fall away. And you just need to make sure that those basics are all locked in. They're all tidied up. You know, contracts are still valid. People are being paid the right amount of money. Their grading's right. They've got the, sort of the, um, say the right role titles, et cetera, because you don't want anything that is going to distract you off people from focusing on the underlying objective. And that, that sense of it's not fair is one of those major distractions you've got to try and eliminate before you can actually sort of help your team get to the, uh, the objectives you're trying to achieve from a business perspective. Mm. I like uh, your performance versus potential yep. matrix. Can you talk talk a little to that? Um, so, the, I mean, this sometimes gets referred to, uh, the, there's, there's, there's two types of matrix here. There's one that's the can do, can't do, um, where you've got people who, you know, do they have the technical skills or not? Um, and do they have the right attitude? Now, I think most people have heard it's you hire for attitude, you train for the technical. If you've got someone in your team that A, hasn't got the technical skills and B, hasn't got the right attitude, they're a ninja. You know, you really do. You've got to get them out of your team because it's very hard to convert. But once you've gone beyond making sure you've got the right sort of people then, it's there are people there that um, who have got not only the, the ability to do their job today, but you can see they've got that potential to move forward in the, um, in the future into more senior positions or more complex complex roles, there's a tendency to say we want all those high aspiring individuals in our team. But they can be quite difficult to manage because if everybody's wanting to get another job, who's going to stay home and sort of, you know, just keep the sort of the orders ticking over? Who's going to keep servicing customers on a day-to-day basis? Some of the most valuable people I've seen in teams, and they, you know, sometimes they get called the rocks. The people that have been there, they're doing their job, they do a fantastic job every day. They're, you know, they're part of the team, they communicate well, they just enjoy what they're doing. They've got no aspirations to move up the corporate ladder, but they are so invaluable. So you have to nurture them. You have to, re- they are important strengths of your team. Recognize mm. them. Don't just focus on the people that are going to be the next CEO. Getting the scorecard right. Yep. I've, I've often, I battle in, in our business with, I'm a big fan of scorecards and I like the idea of making things visual and... But I think I've battled with, well, what should be on the scorecard? Yeah. And when I start to think about it, I, you know, I once heard a story that, and I don't know whether this is true or not, but I like the idea of the story, that there was a business that existed where from the CEO down, their scorecard was literally on the wall so that everyone from wherever they are in the organisation to the CEO could see how everyone was going. And yep. I, re- I really like that idea. But I struggle with this idea, what do we put on our scorecards? How do we determine what they, those metrics are? Um, I, I th- and I think that is a, it's particularly challenging because getting the right metrics is obviously critical and it's one of the easiest flaws is to measure what you currently report as to measure what you need to report. And sometimes getting data can be really tricky. 
it's easy to sort of to have too many metrics. And what happens if people have got sort of too many metrics to focus on? They focus on nothing. They just keep doing what they've been doing for the last mm. 10 years. So really trying to discern what's critical, what's not critical. And I tend to break it down into two areas. One is I, I call them these operational metrics. And they're metrics that have been around for a long time and will be around for a long time in the future. And it's things like you're always going to need to know about customer satisfaction, about your quality, the service, your productivity, etc. It doesn't matter what phase you're in of your change and transformation, you will need to know those. You know, back when um, financial services were first being formed in the sort of the, the in the Medici era, you know, people still wanted to know were their customers happy. They still want to know what their productivity level, they would have measured those things. So you have your day-to-day operational metrics, which won't change through time. But then you have the focus on, well, what am I trying to change at this point in time? And they're your transformational metrics. And once again, the two or three interventions you're, you're putting into the business to make it perform differently, and you measure that. So I have three or four metrics around that day-to-day that won't change, and two or three that will really sort of focus on what I'm looking to change that will impact those day-to-day metrics. And so, and then as you cascade them down, some will be relevant to more junior team members and others aren't. So there's no point in giving someone a metric that they have no ability to influence. And the, the, the closer to the coalface you go, the less you need. Just give them sort of two or three things to focus on. And I would always start with quality. You talk about the balanced scorecard. Yep. Are you a fan? I am a big fan. And I've been a big fan for a long time. I'm sort of naturally quite numeric, uh, sort of, I guess, numerical in my approach. So I love the strategy map. I love the cause and effect relationships. I think that sort of the, you know, that early observation that you can't just focus on the financials was critical because they're outcomes. And you've actually got to focus on the inputs and process and people capability. Um, so I, I do like it. I mean, I, I know there are, there are critics of it. Um, but I would I still come back to that in terms of trying to get that balance right and trying to minimise that number of metrics, but still cover the bases. Mm. It's interesting you say that about the critics because I I find that with just about every every model yeah. or framework exists. You have Absolutely. the you have the advocates, you have the yeah. the ones that are trying to pull it apart, and then you have the ones that have never heard about it. And yeah. I mean, you can see you see in the book. You know, I think I put in one of the appendix. There's probably about. 150 measures I identify that are potential for a team. Now, no team is going to have, a, well, if they do have 150 metrics, they're not going to be doing anything else apart from focusing on metrics. Yeah. Um, but it's horses for courses, and you you know, you know, have to adapt to where your business is at, the nature of the team, what it's trying to achieve, what it just needs to do on a day-to-day basis versus what it's trying to transform and what it's trying to change. You also talk about, and I know we spoke a little bit about, about individual performance metrics. I'd like to dig into that a bit deeper. Yeah. Do you think there's a, a reluctance by certain people to really go down the path of individual performance metrics because suddenly they're accountable? Um, yes, I do. And I think this comes back to this, this trust issue. You talked earlier about the, the, the business that had the metrics from the CEO right down to the team member visible. Now, in some organizations, that would see as a name and shame. And that would drive so much business. Um, it would create these undercurrents of be unease and that's because you just don't have a high trust environment i remember going and um, seeing the virgin call center oh 15 20 years ago now and they had a similar sort of effect where everybody could see where everybody else was at and there were some people who were clearly lagging and i said how does that guy feel and he says 
Oh, he doesn't mind because, you know, he knows that the rest of the team will help him get to his goal because they were team-based goals, even though you, it was represented as an individual on the chart. So it's the underlying cultural determined part of this. But the thing that fascinates me about individuals and particularly individual productivity is no one has a measure on their forehead which tells them tells you how much capacity they have or not. And Parkinson's law applies here. So if you give someone two hours to do some work, they'll do it in two hours. If you give them four hours, they'll do it in four hours. If you give them eight hours, they'll do it in eight hours. So how do you know what the potential of the individual is? How can you really try to get that level of productivity from an individual to help them grow, but not to stress them out? And that's where the focus is. And that's I think that's one of the great arts of management and, um, and leadership of any kind. And understanding individual capacity, I think for me, is the... Um, is the real key to success in organizational performance because it's so hard to do because you've really got to tap into the emotions of the individual, mm. the psyche of the individual, but know when they are not quite as busy as this, they like to say they are. I've been asking people for 15 years, how are you going today? You've got a lot on? No one has ever said, no, I've got nothing to do. <laughs> Everybody's always busy. Yeah. But you know when you're really busy, you can just get a hell of a lot of stuff done. You've heard the old adage, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. Yeah. Understanding customer quality. Yeah. This, this idea of customer focus, it's uh, it's an interesting one because there's a lot of contrary views going on about customers at the moment. Talk to me a little bit about this. I just think it's extraordinarily difficult. Um, the example I, I use a lot in um, my training is that um, there's, there's, two, there's two parts to this. One, when I first came to Australia, I had a little Ford laser. And I remember taking it to a service station. And this, the guy said, oh, look, it'll cost 150 bucks for the service. Um, but when, uh, if there's anything wrong with it, I'll give you a call. Went to pick it up at 4.30. And um, car was serviced. Charged me 150 bucks. You know, was I a satisfied customer? And when I talked to him, he said, oh, yeah, you must have been. And I said, I was absolutely livid. I said, I arrived at 4.30, which is when they told me to arrive. But they had the radio on so loud they couldn't hear me in the uh, in the workshop. There was no water in the water cooler. And it was a 42-degree day. And then I sat down on the sofa and I got oil on my suit. So whilst the outcome from that experience, uh, the outcome from the service was good, car was serviced, cost me 150 bucks. the experience I went through to get it was appalling. So I tried to explain that difference between the outcome and the experience. And then I said, now if my mum rings into a contact centre uh, to get an account balance, she wants to tell them that, her son lives in Australia, her daughter lives in the States, um, all her brothers and sisters, their children live within five miles of where they were growing up in Leeds, and she wants to have a chat for about half an hour. At the end of that, she'll ask, can you tell me what my account balance is or whatever? If you try to cut her off any earlier, oh, they're terribly rude at that bank of yours. When I get on the phone, I want to be off the phone within about four minutes flat. Mm. So how do you know whether it's Nigel or his mum calling? And, and because each individual defines quality in their own way, and it will be based on what your current has gone in your life. If you've had a big night out on the Terps, if you sort of had a fight with your partner, something's happened in your personal life, you will carry that into your um, expectations of quality in any service. I mean, I remember having a really bad day at work, coming home, and we'd been sort of charged twice on our energy bills. And I thought, right, I'm going to get on the phone. I'm going to give that, you know, get on the phone to Origin, and I'm going to give them an absolute hammering. Not because it was particularly bad what they'd done. It wasn't great, but it wasn't really bad. But just because I was feeling that way out. Mm -hmm. And the operator for Origin was just so good. 
I couldn't get angry with her. So amazing. May, and, and defining quality is really hard in a service context. Mm. And do you think we, do you think organizations are really focused on their customers? Um, I've got a big thing about sort of the, the structure of Australia because it's such a huge country, relatively small in population terms, very, very centralized. You find lots of industries have either got oligopolies or duopolies. You don't need to be really, really good to make money in that sort of industry structure. And it's just, you know you look at it in the airlines every time you you know you used to get another airline coming in, it would crash. You look at it in the supermarkets, uh, look at it in financial services. It's you know are we really, really that competitive? I don't think we are. Therefore, the customer is the one that tends to uh, sort of fall by the wayside. Everybody sort of talks about being customer focused but I don't know whether we really are mm. and which is why sort of a lot, a lot of the digital startups is uh, and seeing how they're trying to tap into particular niche markets and the take up rate that they're getting is really interesting mm. yeah because I travel a lot uh, I have all sorts of different experiences as a, as a customer yep and, and I find it quite astounding that it just seems a lot of the interactions I have are not geared towards me as a customer yeah they're very much geared towards whatever the organisation wants to the business. do. Yeah. yeah, which ultimately, you know, you should fall by the wayside. I mean, it, you know, like I said, when I if I go to the states, you, the the way it's set up, if you go into like a restaurant, obviously because of the tipping situation, mm. you expect to get great service. It drives me nuts that they're trying to over service me because they're wanting a big tip. <laughs> so, you know, so once again, it's very, very personally defined about what, is, you, what you like. Yeah. So, why do you like customer journey maps? Um. Because I think it's, it does it helps with that translation. So you have to see this from a customer perspective and you sort of, what is a customer going through? And it starts before they even sort of enter into the organization, into their sort of service context. But to understand what they're thinking, what are they feeling, the, perso- the persona type, I mean, I guess from the old school, it'd just be the segmentation model you'd apply, but you, what are they thinking, what are they feeling? And then you say, what are they saying about your business? So you capture that voice of customer you translate it into their pain points, and it's that point that is critical for me because from that pain point, you can then define what your critical to quality measures are. That's what helps you def- set your processes and specification of your processes to help deliver that. Now, say so the, the more tangible outputs, it's much easier to do in terms of how long should I take to deliver this service, what should, you know, what's my accuracy rate or my other quality measures, it's a bit harder on the emotional, um, intangible elements, but at least the people running the processes know what they are and they can try and imagine what it's been. I've seen all sorts of examples. I've seen people with mannequins in their offices dressed up as a customer and what people are encouraged to do in their team meetings is let's ask the customer. And it's, and it's just a physical representation mm. to try and keep the customer in the business's head. Yeah, well, isn't isn't there, isn't there that story of what um, Jeff Bezos does at Amazon? Is yeah. every meeting he has an empty chair, yeah. and the empty chair is supposed to, to represent, represent the, the customer. customer. Yeah. Yeah. You also talk about the need to innovate and improve, and I find that innovation right now is probably a very very hot topic. Yep. A lot a lot of people are, are talking about it, but I don't necessarily think people are doing it well. I think they're sort of jumping onto the idea, but they don't necessarily create the environment or the structure behind it hmm. um and i i think this is this is quite it is it's a hot topic and you know, everybody wants to be seen to be part of an innovation lab they want to be part yes. of a startup or whatever the, yeah. the, the case may be um 
And initially, this section was just about, I just refer to it as improvement. But it's not as sexy a term as innovation. <laughs> uh, but for me, they are two sides of the same coin. There are very, very few breakthrough um, innovations. The, most of them tend to be enhancements and um, a small step change as being a large transformative change. If you look at something like the, um, the Apollo program, that wasn't one giant leap for mankind. That was lots of continuous experiments that took place over a 13, 14-year period. Mm. Each experiment just trying out a couple of new techniques. You know, can we get out of the Earth's atmosphere? Can we get it back again? You know, can we orbit the moon? You know, can we land something on the moon? And so there is an element of continuation in this. And I think what it's doing is you have all these sort of tools, the resources, the new technologies, etc., and as long as you are very clear about your purpose, very clear about your customers, but the most critical question is, how do I create value? So much of what we do just doesn't add value to customers. And if we're not creating value, they're not going to give us the money. Mm. So keep people coming back to that. Why am I doing? I'm not doing change for change's sake. I'm doing change because it creates value in some way, shape or form. And I think that starts to get over this innovation um, hurdle that we just you know, doing stuff because we think it's sexy. Yeah. I think sometimes people think, oh, if we put beanbags in the office and ping pong tables, they'll suddenly yep. we'll innovate. And we'll we'll innovate. All we this. Yeah. But I am a big fan of that idea of you, the, the, the side of the brain that's innovative is a different side of the brain, brain that works in repeat processes. And most of us, you know, we, we do like routine. We do like to work in on tasks that we know how to do so that when it comes time to, to, con- the need to continue to innovate is is ever present. So what I've done with teams is try to blend the two. So I will blend into an operating rhythm, time for us to do problem solving, to take it out of our day-to-day work. What problems are we going to fix? Where are we going to innovate? But I wouldn't just do that in the same office environment that um, I would have a team meeting about how we're going to get through today's work. I would try to change it up just to switch the brain, whether that would be we'd go out for a coffee, I'd go and say, right, we're going to do some really, we're going to have a theme today and I want you to brainstorm, but everybody's got to stand on one leg and we'll stop brainstorming until someone sort of, you know, puts both feet on the ground just to try and change the dynamic to get people out of that routine nature of work so that they can switch on the other part of their brain. You write about an operational excellence journey. And a couple of things which really stood out to me here was the, the idea of standardize and simplify. Because I think a lot of organizations are very, sometimes they think complexity is the answer, but I think it's, personally, I think it's actually the opposite. So what's the operational excellence journey? So there's, um, there are a couple of things to this. First and foremost, um, you've got to get in control of your business to start with before you can even think about your operational excellence journey. So that is the really first step because what it means when you're in control, you've both got your quality right and you're applying the right number of resources to the problems that you deal with on a day-to-day basis. You will free up capacity. Once you've got capacity, you can then start to improve, which is a self-fulfilling cycle. Now, where lots of organizations I feel are really struggling with their transformation is They're trying to transform just fragments of processes. And because of their evolution over the last 20, 30, 40 years of acquisitions, divestments, new markets, new products, new channels, 
restructures, restructures, re-onshoring, re-offshoring, all of that has just come, created this huge, I guess, plate of spaghetti of process fragments. Now, if you suddenly then try start to transform that and digitize it, and you're digitizing little strands of spaghetti, it's going to take a long, 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 long time. So what the team should be focusing on is how do I simplify? Now, lots of people talk about simplifying. We've got to simplify our business. But they don't actually say, well, what does that mean? You can take it at a strategic level, which means, you know, we operate in fewer countries. We've got fewer channels we use, fewer markets, fewer products. Take it at a quite macro level. But when you think about how work gets done, it gets done at a process level. And what makes a a process complex is how many steps there are, how many handoffs there are, how many decisions the operator needs to make, how many systems are involved, and how many variants of the process there are. You reduce any one of those combinations and you'll have a simpler process. So this this journey, the start of this journey is to say, okay, get in control. And the first thing is free up capacity by just stop doing stuff. So much of the stuff you do doesn't add value, so just stop it. That will create space. I send out this report that no one ever reads. Well, don't send it out, okay, because you're spending an hour preparing it. Just stop doing the report. Once you've stopped doing stuff, you've got a bit of capacity. Sweep everything into a pile. Consolidate people doing the same sort of work. If you've got teams spread over different floors, bring them into one area. If you've got teams doing, you've got a process for Victoria, a process for New South Wales, a process for Queensland, put them all together and you'll have three different processes, but really it should just be one. So by sweeping them into piles and letting each other see how you do things differently, you then set yourself up to do the standardized. And this is not any color you like as long as it's black. Sensible uniformity has to have commercial value. Don't just try and you know standardize everything to within an inch of its life. People still like to have a bit of creative muse around them. So just bring it together because once you've standardized it, then you can strip out all the waste that's in there. So you've got people trying to improve and simplify one process, not 25 processes. And if you do that, then everybody gets to benefit. And it's, then it's much easier to automate. Far, far easier to automate one than 30 processes. So you talk about this idea, Nigel, of supporting transformational change. Because yep. uh, I imagine in organisations, a lot of people aren't in the lead of it, they're they're, they're there to support it. So how can they support it in a way which, I don't know, suits them and at the same time suits the organisation? So for me, this is one of the biggest challenges that organisations face when they're doing transformation. I think sort of particularly over the last sort of few years, um, senior execs and leaders, they've they've heard about the, the digital natives and what's driven their success. They've heard about all the new jobs, the data scientists, the AI specialists, the Python coders, the scrum masters, and they're looking through their own org charts, and we haven't got any of those, so I better go and get some. So they create a change team, a transformation team, and they're hiring all these external people um, and who then don't know how to work in an organization that's been around for quite a bit and don't know how to get things done, so they just get frustrated. The same time, the 90% of people who are doing the day-to-day are thinking, right, well, I've had my budgets cut to pay for these clowns that have just come in from the change team. They're getting paid twice as much money as me. They don't know what they're doing. They haven't delivered anything. And at the end of the day, I'm going to lose my job. So you've got this tension and this real culture class. And of course, you know, neither's right and neither's wrong. And the trick is how do you bring them together? How do you bring the people doing the day-to-day into the transformational tent? Because by doing that journey we just talked about in terms of the stop, standardize, consolidate, etc., 
you simplify the task of the transformation team. But by doing all the other things, the control and freeing up capacity, you then give the team, the day-to-day team space to learn the new skills. So they will have a role in the future and they will learn the new skills. And so that was the really, you know, what I had to sort of figure out is how can I make that happen? And so the first thing was to make sure the two teams connect. They communicate, they're sharing information, and the, the, the people in sort of my experience that I was working with on the change team, they were really helpful. They recognized the expertise and the knowledge I had in my area. They were willing to bring them into the sort of the, into the tent. They were doing sharing showcases. They were part of working groups. They would come out to our teams to come and do demonstrations and presentations, all sort of trying to just bind the two together so they have common goals, common metrics, common objectives, even though one's doing the big transformation stuff. The other one's just doing the sort of the keeping the sort of customers happy on a day to day basis. I also had to work on language because, you know, particularly day to day teams can be quite blunt about the reality of if change goes in and it's not successful, then they're usually not shy about giving feedback. But there's a way to give feedback. And by changing the language, by always making sure the customer comes into the conversation, you, you know, you don't say yes, but you say yes, and, and you're looking for positive ways, you take a can do attitude, you're not seen to be undermining the transformation, you seem to be supportive. So quite simple techniques in many ways, but really important to try and break down this barrier of us versus them. It's a collective we will deliver the transformation. The job of the day to day guys, they've got their mission to keep customers happy today, keep running, keep sort of keep the quality going preparing the railroad tracks for the transformation the transformation teams have got to introduce all the new technologies etc and it's how the two work together that will deliver success what are the roles of the future look like um i mean there's, there's a vast amount of being written about this i think there's a really sort of concerning paper that came out about three years ago that you know half the jobs that exist today won't <laughs> exist in the future I'm sure if we go back in time, that's been said for, for decades. You know, you go back to the Luddites in sort of, you know, 1830s UK in weaving and textile manufacturing. And that's why they got sort of, you know, started to burn down factories because they thought they were going to be out of a job. But um, I remember going to a, uh, a roundtable session with a few CEOs that AGSM hosted many, many years ago. And there's a question that was asked about the rise of consumerism in, in, in Asia, particularly China, China and India, where essentially going to triple the number of consumers coming into the workplace uh, in coming into the environment how was the earth going to cope with the lack of resources to support those consumers and one particular ceo said i don't know the answer but i have enormous faith in mankind's ability to innovate and solve the problem and so my sense about operations of the future and how people work they will be doing different jobs they will be doing work that's assisted by technology. Some work won't exist. Some tasks won't exist. Some jobs won't exist. But new ones will. You know, 20 years ago, there was no such job as a blogger. No, it didn't exist. But so as the tools and the te- technologies move forward, new jobs come on the way. And I think for me, lots of the work that people do, in particularly in like a service environment, um, they are routine and repetitive, and they don't particularly want to do them. They don't, yeah, it's a job and it pays the bills. They would be much rather doing more interesting work about how you can work with customers to create new value than just doing data entry or just sort of reviewing particular um, aspects of a system, moving data from one system to another. And that's where technology can really, really help. So I, th- and I think the main thing is there's a process to get there and to equip people with the skills and techniques so they're not frightened of technology. 
and that they're prepared to go learn new things, be curious, be creative, try stuff out, give it a go, and look forward as opposed to bunkering down. Mm. And I think leaders in particular, uh, you know, I think still a, a while away yet where those soft skills which leaders need to get the most out of their people, uh, that can be taken by a robot or AI or whatever all the doomsayers are saying yep. is going to happen. I think, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you look at sort of, you know, a lot of the Harvard Business Review stuff, the McKinsey stuff, what the large consulting firms are putting out. There's two aspects. There's one, you know, there's this huge focus on data science, coding, technology, STEM skills, blah, blah, blah. Then there's an, another school of thought about the soft skills. And, you know, you absolutely, you have to have both because ultimately people have to work together. And without that empathy, without being able to walk in someone else's shoes, understand what's motivating and driving someone, it's really hard to get anything stuff done. And especially if you're trying to build a team. Mm-hmm. You write about this idea of establishing an operating rhythm. Yeah. And uh, I'm curious about this because I imagine that would be easier for some businesses than others. So some that are based on uh, repetition and task. Yep. And then others that are far more customer reactive would find that more of a challenge. So how can, how can businesses start to think about their operational rhythm? Um, I, I think you're right, and that it's, it's not, there's not a one-size-fits-all here. There are, certain, um, there are certain businesses which lend themselves to quite an easy standardized schedule and calendar, and there are others which you have to adapt it. But every year we have a tax year, so you need to prepare your books just to just make sure when do you actually sort of, you know, when do you lock that in? Every year you want to announce what our objectives are and goals are. So when are we going to do it? Just lock it in. And an operating rhythm is really just a calendar of events. Now, sometimes the the more you can put on that calendar of events, the easier it is to manage because you know when critical things are coming up. If you're in a business which is quite reactive, um, what you know is that as a, a customer inquiry comes in, that triggers a whole set of interactions. So you may not be able to plan out nine months' time a particular customer inquiry coming in, but as soon as it comes in, you can plan out the next three weeks. And if you look at sort of the whole move towards Agile, that was around creating an operating rhythm. It was about getting into two to four week type sprint cycles with a very, very structured rhythm of how you tackle the items on your backlog that you want to prioritize. So it's just about saying, there are things that I need to do, there are things I need to do about my people, about how I manage my people, about how I manage my finances, about how I manage my day-to-day work. What you can um, lay out in a, in a calendar, do so. If you can't, if it's unpredictable, but there's a trigger, as soon as that trigger hits, put it down on your calendar and you know at least what the next few weeks are going to look like. Okay. You actually have a section in the book towards the end called "Getting Started." Yep. <laughs> if, if people want to do, if people want to get match fit for transformation, where should they start? So there's um, there's two answers to the question. First of all, throughout the book, at the end of every section, at the end of every chapter, there is a checklist, and basically you work through the checklist. And if you tick, if you can put a cross in the box, then that's where you start. And so it is set out sequentially, pretty much. There's also um, there's an appendix which talks about how to do a current state assessment so you can check off where you're at, and that will also give you some indication of where you should start, um, which things are easy to do. In, in essence, start get the context out, get the people basics done, figure out your measurements, focus on your customer quality and capacity management. They're the, the, it's in that order, 
then start to think about improvement and the raft of different techniques. Now, the only caveat I put on that is you do need to think about where your business is currently at. And there's a little test that I have in there called the red flag test. If when you go through the red flag test, which is 20 or 30 questions, you hit some of those red flags, you need to focus on those first. If you've got an environment where people don't feel safe, you can forget match fit for transformation. You have to solve that problem because if people are coming to work, whether that's a physical or mental health or an emotional safety issue, you're not going to achieve anything until you address that. If there's some bullying going on in the workplace, there's some harassment, people think you know it's a dangerous workplace because there's you know uh, there, are, there are wires that are exposed, etc. You've got to deal with those. If you've got just major systems outages just hitting you day after day after day after day, there's little bits you can sort of focus on here, but you have to have a stable operating environment to really succeed. So go through the red flag checklist, figure out if you've got any real serious pain points that need to be addressed immediately. If so, deal with them. If not, then just work through sequentially the um, the current state assessment and the actual the schedule that's in the in the, the last chapter. Okay. Are there any books or particular leaders or people that inspire you in the work that you do? Um, uh, just too many to mention. I say I, I love reading. I, I, I love everything from sort of history books, sort of, you know, the whole um, John le Carre sort of detective novels. I'm a big sort of believer in the classical sort of uh, literature and stuff. A lot of the management books I've read, I've tended to go away from the more like good to great type stuff and the, 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 the visionary leadership things. I like te- technical books that give me checklists because it just makes yep. it easy to do my job. And then I also like things about people dynamics. So there's a great book that's been out by Robert Greene called 48 Laws of Power. Um, Machiavelli, fantastic yeah. book to understand co- company yeah. politics and how prince. and the <laughs> prince, yeah, how people sort of work together. So I tend to read those. Individual leaders, as I mentioned earlier, two leaders I've worked for who were just absolutely superb at managing individual differences. They could find the sweet spot in every, in every person we worked for. Um, when I was running pubs, my boss at the time, um, she was new into the role. She was um, relatively sort of young for that particular level of role. She had a very hard team, sort of a lot of dyed in the wool people, been around a long, long time, weren't happy that they'd been overlooked to, for this particular role, wasn't a particularly well-performing team, and within a year it was completely transformed. And that was down to her ability to manage individual differences and get the best out of each individual and get them to work together. So that was extraordinary to watch. Um, a teacher from, uh, I guess, grade four, grade five, who tutored me from a personal perspective. He and his wife was also a teacher. When they retired, they just travel the world. They're they're never at home, and you know they were teachers, so they you know weren't particularly wealthy. But their passion for life, their zest for life, their ability to be curious, to try things, and they're just constantly walking around the world, um, experiencing new things. So I love that. And then I guess the final part will be. Anybody that can effect significant change that is has integrity, humility, um, dignity, and authenticity, that they're the major leader characteristics for me. This idea of, you know, tick the box, aspirational leadership, I really don't buy into it. Just the personal agendas that drive people. No, show me authenticity anytime, and I'll follow you as a leader. And there's a, I remember a coach once telling me that leadership is really simple. It's about showing people how to get from um, A to B and then inspiring them to follow you. 
So you don't you know, forget all your thousands of dollars on management textbooks and things like that and leadership textbooks. That for me has just stuck and resonated as a thought. You know, how do you do that inspirational part? And it's not just about the big blue sky visionary mm. leadership. If Rome's burning, your team don't want to know where you're going to be in five years' time. <laughs> Help them put out the fires today. Yeah. So you have to balance balance management and leadership at the same mm. time. So. Okay. And if people want to find out more about you and the work that you do, where should they go? A lot of stuff I do on my LinkedIn profile, which is uh, just Nigel Adams 1. I think I was a very early adopter of LinkedIn. No idea why that happened, but it just did. Or my website, which is uh, Hetton Advisory, H-E-T-T-O-N, advisory.com. So any last words on leadership and uh, being match fit? Um, Just start. It doesn't cost any money to do this. Lots of the things, lots of the checklists are really simple. And, you know, what the people I've been coaching over the last sort of few weeks, when they read through the quick assessments I get them to do before we start our coaching sessions, they say, oh, I knew about that, but I just, you know, I just haven't had time to do it. And that's why the operating rhythm, you have to find space because you've got to get these basics and they don't take long to do, but they really, really are important. It doesn't cost any money. You know, there's enough checklists and matrices and toolkits in the book where you can just do it yourself you don't have to ask for permission you don't have to go and sort of get your boss's approval for you know significant investment spend just get on and do it and as i say if you focus on quality nothing bad will happen great well on that note thank you so much nigel for coming out to Engine hq and being on this engine leadership podcast thank you very much julian really appreciate it Well, that wraps up episode 97 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Another great author episode for you. I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergen Group website and engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode. Tell us who you'd like us to review. Tell us what sort of content you'd like me to deliver to. And if you are an iPhone user, please feel free. Head on over to the Apple site and do leave us a review. It really helps us build awareness of the podcast. In next week's episode, we have another great curriculum ecosystem episode for you where I share some thoughts around a framework for identifying high performers called the Nine Box Grid. It's another great content episode. Till then, love to hear what you think. And as always, happy listening.